Chapter 9, Parts 1 to 7 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Ninth The Spirit of the New World. 1. I met Rachel again in Germany through the devices of my cousin, the Fürsten Letzlingen. I had finished seeing what I wanted to see in Westphalia, and I was preparing to go to the United States. There I thought I should be able to complete and round off that large view of the human process I had been developing in my mind. But my departure was delayed by an attack of influenza that I picked up at a socialist congress in Munich, and the dear Durchlacht, hearing of this and having her own views of my destiny, descended upon me while I was still in bed there, made me get up, and carried me off in her car to take care of me herself at her villa at Beaupard, telling me nothing of any fellow guests I might encounter. She had a villa upon the Rhine under a hill of vineyards, where she devoted herself, she was a widow, to matchmaking and belated regrets for the childlessness that necessitated a perpetual borrowing of material for her pursuit. She had a motor-car, a steam-launch, several rowing-boats and canoes, a tennis-lawn, a rambling garden, a devious house, and a rapid mind, and in fact everything that was necessary for throwing young people together. She made her surprise seem easy and natural, and with returning health I found myself already back upon my old footing of friendly intimacy with Rachel. I found her a new and yet a familiar Rachel. She had grown up. She was no longer a schoolgirl, crystalline clear with gleams of emotion and understanding, and what she had lost in transparency she had gained in depth. And she had become well informed. She had been reading very widely and well, I could see, and not simply reading, but talking and listening and thinking. She showed a vivid interest in the current of home politics. At that time, the last government of Mr. Balfour was ebbing to its end, and my old Transvaal friends, the Chinese coolies, were to avenge themselves on their importers. The tariff reformers my father detested were still struggling to unseat the premier from his leadership of conservatism. It was queer to hear once more, after my Asiatic wanderings and dreamings, those West End dinner-table politics, those speculations about Winston's future, and the possibility of Lloyd George or Ramsay MacDonald or McNamara taking office with the Liberals, and whether there might not ultimately be a middle party, in which Haldane and Balfour, Gray and the Cecils could meet upon common ground. It seemed now not only very small, but very far off. She told me, too, of the huge popularity of King Edward. He had proved to be interested, curious, understanding, and clever, an unexpectedly successful king. She described how he was breaking out of the narrow official limits that had kept his mother in a kind of social bandbox, extending his softened informality of friendliness to all sorts of men. He had won the heart of Will Crooks, the labor member for Poplar, for example, made John Burns a social success, and warmed all France for England. 
I surveyed this novel picture of the English throne diffusing amiability. "'I suppose it's what the throne ought to do,' said Rachel. "'If it can't be inspiration, at any rate it can tolerate and reconcile, and take the ill-bred bitterness out of politics.' "'My father might have said that.' "'I got that from your father,' she said, and added after a momentary pause, "'I go over and talk to him.' "'You talk to my father?' I like to, or rather I listen and take it in. I go over in the afternoon. I go sometimes twice or three times a week. That's kind of you. Not at all. You see, it sounds impudent, I know, for a girl to say so, but we've so many interests in common. 2. I was more and more interested by Rachel as the days went on. A man must be stupid who does not know that a woman is happy in his presence, and for two years now and more I had met no one with a very strong personal feeling for me. And quite apart from that, her mind was extraordinarily interesting to me, because it was at once so active and so clear, and so limited by her entirely English circumstances. She had the prosperous English outlook. She didn't so much see the wide world as get glimpses of it through the tangle of Westminster and of West End and weekend limitations. She wasn't even aware of that greater unprosperous England, already sulking and darkling outside her political world, that greater England which was presently to make its first audible intimations of discontent, in that remarkable anticlimax to King George's coronation, the railway strike. India, for her, was the land of people's cousins. Germany and the German dreadnoughts bulked far larger, and all the tremendous gathering forces of the East were beyond the range of her imagination. I set myself to widen her horizons. I told her something of the intention and range of my travels, and something of the views that were growing out of their experiences. I have a clear little picture in my mind, of an excursion we made to that huge national Denkmal, which rears its head out of the amiable vineyards of Osmanshausen and Rudesheim over against Bingen. We landed at the former place, went up its little funicular to eat our lunch and drink its red wine at the pleasant inn above, and then strolled along through the woods to the monument. The Fürsten fell behind with her unwilling escort, a newly arrived medical student from England, a very pleasant youngster named Berwick, who was all too obviously anxious to change places with me. She devised delays, and meanwhile I, as yet unaware of the state of affairs, went on with Rachel to that towering florid monument with its vast gesticulating Germania, which triumphs over the conquered provinces. We fell talking of war, and the passions and delusions that lead to war. Rachel's thoughts were strongly colored by those ideas of a natural rivalry between Germany and England, and of a necessary revenge for France, which have for nearly forty years diverted the bulk of European thought and energy to the mere waste of military preparations. I jarred with an edifice of preconceptions when I scoffed and scolded at these assumptions. Our two great peoples are disputing for the leadership of the world, I said, and meanwhile the whole world sweeps past us. 
we are drifting into a quarrelsome backwater. I began to tell of the fermentation and new beginnings that were everywhere perceptible throughout the East, of the vast masses of human ability and energy that were coming into action in China and India, of the unlimited future of both North and South America, of the mere accidentalness of the European advantage. History, I said, is already shifting the significance out of Western Europe altogether, and we English cannot see it. We can see no further than Berlin, and these Germans can think of nothing better than to taunt the French with such tawdry effigies as this. Europe goes on today, as India went on in the eighteenth century, making aimless history, and the sands of opportunity run and run. I shrugged my shoulders, and we stood for a little while, looking down on the shining crescent of the Rhine. Suppose, said Rachel, that someone were to say that, in the house. The house, I said, doesn't hear things at my pitch. Bat outcries, too shrill altogether. It might, if you... She halted, hesitated for a moment on the question, and asked abruptly, When are you coming back to England, Mr. Stratton? Certainly not for six months, I said. A movement of her eyes made me aware of the Furston and Berwick emerging from the trees. And then? asked Rachel. I didn't want to answer that question, in which the personal note sounded so clearly. I am going to America to see America, I said, and America may be rather a big thing to see. You must see it. I want to be sure of it, as something comprehensive. I want to get a general effect of it. Rachel hesitated, looked back to measure the distance of the Furston and her companion, and put her question again, but this time with a significance that did not seem even to want to hide itself. Then will you come back? she said. Her face flamed scarlet, but her eyes met mine boldly. Between us there was a flash of complete understanding. My answer, if it was lame and ungallant to such a challenge, was at least perfectly honest. I can't make up my mind, I said. I've been near making plans, taking steps. Something holds me back. I had no time for an explanation. I can't make up my mind, I repeated. She stood for a moment rather stiffly, staring away toward the blue hills of Alsace. Then she turned with a smiling and undisturbed countenance to the Furston. Her crimson had given place to white. The triumph of it! she said, with a slight gesture, to the flamboyant Teutonism that towered over us, and boldly repeating words I had used scarcely five minutes before, makes me angry. They conquered ungraciously. She had overlooked something in her effort to seem entirely self-possessed. She collapsed. My dear, she cried, I forgot. Oh, I'm only a German by marriage cried the Furston, and I can assure you I quite understand. 
about the triumph of it. She surveyed the achievement of her countrymen. It is ungracious, but indeed it's only a sort of artlessness if you see the thing properly. It's not vulgarity, it's childishness. They've hardly got over it yet. Their intense astonishment at being any good at war. That large throaty victory. She's not so militant as she seems. She's too plump. Of course, what a German really appreciates is nutrition. But I quite agree with you both. I'm beginning to want my tea, Mr. Stratton. Rachel. Her eyes had been on Rachel as she chattered. The girl had turned to the distant hills again, and had forgotten even to pretend to listen to the answer she had evoked. Now she came back sharply to the sound of her name. Tea, said the firstin. Oh, cried Rachel, yes, yes, certainly, rather, tea. 3. It was clear to me after that that I must, as people say, have things out with Rachel. But before I could do anything of the sort, the firstin pounced upon me. She made me sit up that night after her other guests had gone to their rooms, in the cosy little turret apartment she called her study, and devoted to the reading of whatever was most notorious in contemporary British fiction. "'Sit down,' she said, "'by the fire in that chair there, and tell me all about it. It's no good your pretending you don't know what I mean. What are you up to with her, and why don't you go straight to your manifest destiny as a decent man should?' "'Because manifestly it isn't my destiny,' I said. "'Stuff,' said the firstin. "'You know perfectly well why I am out of England. "'Everybody knows, except, of course, quite young persons who are being carefully brought up. "'Does she know?' "'She doesn't seem to.' "'Well, that's what I want to know.' "'Need she know?' Well, it does seem rather essential. I suppose if you think so. Will you tell her? Tell her yourself if she must be told. Down there in Surrey she must have seen things and heard things. But I don't see that she wants a lot of ancient history. If it is ancient history. Oh, two years and a half. It's an era. I made no answer to that but sat staring into the fire while my cousin watched my face. At length I made my confession. I don't think it is ancient history at all, I said. I think if I met Mary again now... You mean Lady Mary Justin? Of course. It would be good for your mind if you remembered to call her by her proper name. You think if you met her again you too would begin to carry on, but you see, you aren't going to meet her. Everybody will see that doesn't happen. I mean that I... well... You'd better not say it. Besides, it's nonsense. I doubt if you've given her a thought for weeks and weeks. Until I came here, perhaps that was almost nearly true. But you've stirred me up, sweet cousin, and old things... Old memories and habits have come to the surface again, 
Mary wrote herself over my life, in all sorts of places. I can't tell you. I've never talked of her to anyone. I'm not able very well to talk about my feelings. Perhaps a man of my sort doesn't love twice over. I disregarded a note of dissent from my cousin. That was all so magic, all my youth, all my hope, all the splendid adventure of it. Why should one pretend? I'm giving none of that to Rachel. It isn't there any more to give. One would think, remarked the Firstin, there was no gift of healing. She waited for me to speak, and then, irritated by my silence, struck at me sharply with that wicked little tongue of hers. Do you think that Lady Mary Justin thinks of you, as you think of her? Do you think she hasn't settled down? I looked up at her quickly. She's just going to have a second child, the Firstin flung out. Yes, that did astonish me. I suppose my face showed it. That girl, said the Firstin, that clean girl would have sooner died, ten thousand deaths, and she's never, never been anything to you. I think that for an instant she had been frightened at her own words. She was now quite angry and short of breath. She had contrived a rapid indignation against Mary and myself. I didn't know Mary had had any child at all, I said. This makes two, said the Firstin, and held up a brace of fingers, with scarcely a year and a half between them. Not much more, anyhow. It was natural, I suppose. A natural female indecency. I don't blame her. When a woman gives in, she ought to do it thoroughly. But I don't see that it leaves you much scope for philandering, Stephen, does it? And there you are, and here is Rachel. And why don't you make a clean job of your life? I didn't understand. I wonder what you imagined. I reflected. I wonder what I did. I suppose I thought of Mary just as I had left her, always. I remained with my mind filled with confused images of Mary, memories, astonishment. I perceived the Firstin was talking. Maundering about, she was saying, like a huntsman without a horse. You've got work to do, blood in your veins. I'm not one of your ignorant women, Stephen. You ought to have a wife. Rachel's too good, I said, at the end of a pause, and perceiving I had to say something, to be that sort of wife. No woman's too good for a man, said the first in von Letzlingen with conviction. It's what God made her for. 4. My visit to Bopart was drawing to an end before I had a clear opportunity to have things out with Rachel. It was in a little garden, under the very shadow of that gracious cathedral at Vons, the sort of little garden to which one is admitted by ringing a bell and tipping a custodian. I think Vons is in many respects one of the most beautiful cathedrals I have ever seen, so perfectly proportioned, so delicately faded, so aloof, so free from pride or presumption, 
and it rises over this green and flowery peace, a towering, lithe, light-brown, sunlit, easy thing, as unconsciously and irrelevantly splendid as a tall ship in the evening glow under a press of canvas. We looked up at it for a time, and then went on with the talk to which we had been coming slowly since the Furston had packed us off for it, while she went into the town with Berwick to buy toys for her gatekeeper's children. I had talked about myself, and the gradual replacement of my ambition to play a part in imperial politics by wider intentions. "'You know,' I asked abruptly, "'why I left England?' She thought through the briefest of pauses. "'No,' she decided at last. "'I made love,' I said, "'to Lady Mary Justin, and we were found out. We couldn't go away together.' "'Why not?' she interjected. "'It was impossible.' For some moments neither of us spoke. "'Something,' she said, and then, "'some vague report,' and left these fragments to be her reply. "'We were old playmates. We were children together. We have something that draws us to each other. She... She made a mistake in marrying. We were both very young, and the situation was difficult. And then afterwards we were thrown together. But you see, that has made a great difference to my life. It's turned me off the rails on which men of my sort usually run. I've had to look to these other things. They've become more to me than to most people, if only because of that. You mean these ideas of yours? learning as much as you can about the world, and then doing what you can to help other people to a better understanding? Yes, I said. And that will fill your life. It ought to. I suppose it ought. I suppose you find it does. Don't you think it ought to fill my life? I wondered if it did. But why shouldn't it? It's so so cold. My questioning silence made her attempt to explain. One wants life more beautiful than that, she said. One wants... There are things one needs, things nearer one. We became aware of a jangling at the janitor's bell. Our opportunity for talk was slipping away. And we were both still undecided, both blunderingly nervous and insecure. We were hurried into clumsy phrases that afterwards we would have given much to recall. But how could life be more beautiful, I said, than when it serves big human ends? Her brows were knit. She seemed to be listening for the sound of the unlocking gate. But, she said, and plunged, one wants to be loved, Surely one needs that. You see, for me, that's gone. Why should it be gone? It is. One doesn't begin again. I mean, myself. You can. You've never begun. Not when you've loved. Loved really. I forced that on her. I overemphasized. It was real love, you know, the real thing. I don't mean the mere imaginative love, 
blindfolded love, but love that sees. I want you to understand that. I loved altogether. Across the lawn, under its trim flowering trees, appeared Berwick loaded with little parcels, and manifestly eager to separate us, and the firstin as manifestly putting on the drag. "'There's a sort of love,' I hurried, "'that doesn't renew itself ever. Don't let yourself believe it does. Something else may come in its place, but that is different. It's youth, a wonderful newness.' Look at that youngster. He can love you like that. I've watched him. He does. You know he does. Yes, she said, as hurriedly, but then, you see, I don't love him. You don't? I can't. But he's such a fresh, clean human being. That's not all, said Rachel. That's not all. You don't understand. The two drew near. It is so hard to explain, she said, things that one hardly sees for oneself. Sometimes it seems one cannot help oneself. You can't choose. You are taken. She seemed about to say something more, and stopped and bit her lip. In another moment I was standing up, and the firstin was calling to us across ten feet of space. Such a moose in little toy shops! We've got a heap of things. Just look at him. He smiled over his load, with anxious eyes upon our faces. Ten separate parcels, he said, appealing for Rachel's sympathy. I'm doing my best not to complain. And rather adroitly, he contrived to let two of them slip, and captured Rachel to assist him. He didn't relinquish her again. Five. The firstin and I followed them along the broad, pleasant, tree-lined street towards the railway station. A boy of that age ought not to marry a girl of that age, said the firstin, breaking a silence. I didn't answer. Well, she said, domineering. My dear cousin, I said, I know all that you have in your mind. I admit, I covet her. You can't make me more jealous than I am. She's clean and sweet. It is marvelous how the god of the rest of the world can have made a thing so brave and honest and wonderful. She's better than flowers. But I think I am going away to-night nevertheless. You don't mean you're going to carry chivalry to the point of giving that boy a chance, for he hasn't one while you're about. No, you see, I want to give Rachel a chance. You know as well as I do the things in my mind. That you've got to forget. That I don't forget. That you're bound in honor to forget. And who could help you better? I'm going, I said. And then wrathfully, if you think I want to use Rachel as a sort of dressing for my old sores... I left the sentence unfinished. "'Oh, nonsense!' cried the firstin, and wouldn't speak to me again until we got to that entirely Teutonic art station that is not the least among the sights of Rams. "'Sores, indeed!' said the firstin presently. 
as we walked up the end of the platform. "'There's nothing,' said the Firstin, with an unusual note of petulance, "'she'd like better.' "'I can't think what men are coming to,' she went on. "'You are in love with her, or you wouldn't be so generous. "'And she's head over heels with you, and here you are. "'I'll give you one more chance.' "'I won't take it,' I interrupted. "'It isn't fair. "'I tell you, I won't take it. "'I'll go two days earlier to prevent you, unless you promise me. "'Of course I see how things are with her. "'She's not a sphinx.' But it isn't fair, it isn't, not to her, or to him, or myself. He's got some claims, he's got more right to her than I. A boy like that! No man has any rights about women until he's thirty. And as for me and all the pains I've taken, oh, I hate Fom's, dust and ashes. Well, here, thank heaven, comes the train. If nothing else could stir you, Stephen, at least I could have imagined some decent impulse of gratitude to me. Stephen, you're disgusting. You've absolutely spoiled this trip for me, absolutely, when only a little reasonableness on your part. Oh! She left her sentence unfinished. Berwick and I had to make any conversation that was needed on the way back to Beaupard. Rachel did not talk and the Firstin did not want to. 6. Directly I had parted from Rachel's questioning eyes, I wanted to go back to them. It seems to me now that all the way across to America, in that magnificent German liner I joined at Hamburg, I was thinking in confused alternations of her and of Mary. There are turns of thought that still bring back inseparably with them the faint echo of the airs of the excellent but industrious band that glorified our crossing. I had been extraordinarily shocked and concerned at the thought of Mary bearing children. It is a grotesque thing to confess, but I had never let myself imagine the possibility of such a thing for her who had been so immensely mine. We are the oddest creatures, little son, beasts and barbarians and brains, neither one nor the other, but all confusedly. And here was I, who had given up Mary, and resigned her, and freed myself from her, as I thought altogether, cast back again into my old pit by the most obvious and necessary consequence of her surrender and mine and it's just there, and in that relation, that we men and women are so elaborately insecure. We try to love as equals, and behave as equals, and concede a level freedom, and then comes a crisis. Our laboriously contrived edifice of liberty collapses, and we perceive that so far as sex goes, the woman remains to the man no more than a possession, capable of loyalty or treachery. There, still, at that barbaric stage, the situation stands. You see, I had always wanted to own Mary, and always she had disputed that. That is our whole story, 
the story of an instinctive subjugation struggling against a passionate desire for fellowship. She had denied herself to me, taken herself away. That much I could endure. But now came this blazing fact that showed her, as it seemed, in the most material and conclusive way, overcome. I had storms of retrospective passion at the thoroughness of her surrender. Yes, and that's in every one of us. In every one. I wonder if in all decent law-abiding London there lives a single healthy adult man who has not, at times, longed to trample and kill. For once, I think, the first in miscalculated consequences. I think I should have engaged myself to Rachel before I went to America, if it had not been for the Furston's revelation. But this so tore me that I could no longer go on falling in love again, naturally and sweetly. No man falls in love if he has just been flayed. I could no longer think of Rachel except as a foil to Mary. I was moved to marry her by a new set of motives, to fling her, so to speak, in Mary's face. And from the fierce vulgarity of that, at least, I recoiled, and let her go, as I have told you. 7. I had thought all that was over. I remember my struggles to recover my peace. I remember how very late one night I went up to the promenade deck to smoke a cigar before turning in. It was a warm, moonlit night. The broad, low waves of ebony water that went seething past below foamed luminous and were streaked and starred with phosphorescence. The recumbent moon, past its full and sinking westward, seemed bigger than I had ever seen it before, and the roundness of the watery globe was manifest about the edge of the sky. One had that sense, so rare on land, so common in the night at sea, of the world as a conceivable sphere, and of interstellar space as of something clear and close at hand. There came back to me again that feeling I had lost for a time in Germany, of being not myself, but man, consciously on his little planet, communing with God. But my spirit was saying all the time, I am still in my pit, in my pit. After all, I am still in my pit. And then there broke the answer on my mind, that all our lives we must struggle out of our pits, that to struggle out of our pit is this life. There is no individual life but that, and that there comes no escape here, no end to that effort until the release of death. Continually or frequently we may taste salvation, but never may we achieve it while we are things of substance. Each moment in our lives we come to the test, and are lost again or saved again. To be assured of one's security is to forget and fall away. And standing at the rail with these thoughts in my mind, Suddenly I prayed. I remember how the engine throbs beat through me like the beating of a heart, 
and that far below, among the dim lights that came up from the emigrants in the steerage, there was a tinkling music as I prayed, and a man's voice singing a plaintive air in some strange Slavonic tongue. That voice of the invisible singer, and the spirit of the unknown song-maker, and the serenity of the sky, they were all, I perceived, no more and no less than things in myself that I did not understand. They were out beyond the range of understanding. And yet they fell into the completest harmony that night with all that I seemed to understand. End of chapter 9, parts 1 to 7